Greetings, friends. Welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories about architects, designers, building artisans, and preservationists. I'm your host, Peter Miller. History informs the future, and so do our guests. Every year in the December issue of Traditional Building, we celebrate ecclesiastical design, classic examples of church work, most of it new, traditionally designed houses of worship. One of the design leaders in this sacred space is Duncan Stroik of Duncan G. Stroik Architects, South Bend, Indiana. In addition to practicing architecture, Duncan is a professor of architecture at the University of Notre Dame and the founding editor of Sacred Architecture Journal. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia and the Yale School of Architecture, winner of the 2017 Clem Levine Award, one of traditional buildings 25 who make a difference, and winner of three Palladio Awards in 2014, 2019, and 2022. Duncan's work in classical architecture includes universities, houses, master plans, and of course, churches from St. Paul, Minnesota to Sugarland, Texas, from coast to coast. He's a native of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Welcome, Brother Duncan. Hey, great to be here, Brother Peter. So did you come by your interest and expertise in ecclesiastic design through your religion or through architecture school, some formative life experience, a Catholic school, perhaps? How how do you come by being so prolific designing churches? Well, I think I've been very fortunate in uh, some people have taken risks on me, uh, with me, and uh, I guess the projects worked out and I've really had some great clients. But my passion for uh, sacred architecture comes from uh, when I uh, first started studying architecture at the University of Virginia and just falling in love with Jefferson classicism and the temple and the temple form from the pagan temple through the Jewish temple through the Christian temple. And uh, one of the great moments for me, uh, people may laugh about it, but a great moment for me as an undergraduate at, at Mr. Jefferson's university was reading an article by Leon Creer and then a follow-up article by Quinlan Terry in which he talked about the sacred and he saw the beginning of, of architecture as, as related to or of classical architecture as being pulled in from the uh, temple in Jerusalem. Interesting. So when um, you're working on a campus building or a master plan, who's, who's the client, the priest, the president, or the parishioners? That's really good, Peter. We would like to design it for all of them. I'd like to design it for uh, the past, uh, that is to relate to our tradition of great buildings and campuses and so on, uh, and to our grandparents, you might say. And then I'd like to also relate to the present, which is usually the person, the bishop, the priest, the president that I'm working for directly uh, and has the money or can find the money. Uh, these are all expensive buildings, but then ultimately we are designing it for the future and we're designing it for the, the, uh, next generation, the people that are going to use it tomorrow, the next generation and the children. So we do want to do something 
totally stylish that'll go out of style in 10 years. No, we want to do something that'll be timeless and that'll speak across uh, the ages. And uh, so you're right. We really have, we have three different clients. Have you ever done a, a Gothic revival church? So we get asked to do Gothic work all the time. And of course we have a wonderful, uh, uh, tradition of gothic churches in america as well as in europe and a lot of people that is what then when they associate uh, religion uh, religious architecture with they uh, think of pointed arches and uh, stained glass and i don't blame them so we get asked this a lot and we um the thing the only thing i can claim is that we've been fortunate to work on renovating or adding to some beautiful gothic churches uh one or two in connecticut uh, where we just kind of fixed up the sanctuary that had been, you, let's say, we'd like to say in the field, uh, professional term, recovated in the 70s and 80s. And we kind of restore it or bring something new that looks like it's always been there uh, up in Connecticut. And then uh, we've been fortunate recently to renovate part of the cathedral in um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, up the street from me which is a fun project because it was done by the firm that was founded by Ralph Adams Cram, one of our greatest architects, and of course, a great Gothic revivalist. So we were able to touch a Cram building uh, and work on that. And I hope people feel that it is respectful and, uh, and uh, harmonious with the work of Cram. He was dead by that time, but his firm continued doing really fine work. This is like 1950. Uh, most of the churches you've done that I'm familiar with are new buildings, St. Thomas Aquinas in California, Christ Chapel at Hillsdale College in Michigan. They are of Roman descent, not English Gothic, right? Yes. That, that I would say that that is our, uh, our passion and our, if we could say, if you could say that we have any kind of expertise, I'd like to think that we have an expertise in the, in the Roman tradition or the classical tradition, but I do not exclude the Romanesque or the Gothic because I think they're all sisters, you know, and we couldn't, I like to tell my students uh, that as much as I love ancient Rome, early Christian architecture and so on, Byzantine, uh, and then, of course, the Renaissance and the Baroque. We could not have had the Renaissance and the Baroque without the medieval. There's so many things that the medieval gave to us that the Renaissance, people think of the Renaissance as rejecting the Gothic. Well, in some ways, yes, but there's so much that they taught us. First of all, the cruciform plan. Second of all, the dome at the crossing. Um, third, the clear story. All these the many, many, many ideas were given to us by the brilliant master builders and architects in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and then the Baroque and later periods developed on that. We could not have done St. Peter's, the great Renaissance Baroque extravaganza without the Gothic. Next month during the Traditional Building Conference in Tampa, Florida, we have an architectural tour planned of your award-winning church, chapel of the holy cross at a jesuit prep school in tampa so tell us about this project for which you won a 2019 palladio award well i'm just thrilled that you guys would visit tampa which is a growing booming city and i find that people there uh, though it is a booming city and has all the stuff that you expect in a booming modern city it also has a lot of people that love tradition and beauty and history 
And uh, we, we had that in, um, at, at Tampa Jesuit, um, high school for boys, 900 boys. And the president, uh, interestingly enough, is a classicist with his PhD from uh, Fordham. And okay, he's a classicist. What is his name? Father Hermes, what a great <laughs> name. So, so he came and interviewed me and then I, I don't know what I said, but he, he probably couldn't find anybody else to do the project. And it's a very simple building, but the crux of the, the crux of the matter is they had a 1960 church in the round, kind of like a really nice pizza hut. Or uh, do you remember the Howard Johnson's, the Howard Johnson restaurants, the orange roofs, kind of in that manner, 1960, everybody was doing that, especially for churches. And the air conditioning didn't work. The structure was failing. It looked ugly, uh, had terrible acoustics. It was dead as a doornail. Uh, and they needed more room because they are growing. They're, you know, they have a top sports program and amazing academic program at uh, Tampa Jesuit. At any rate, they wanted to renovate the church and they hired me to renovate it. And I said, well, that's fine. I'm happy to renovate it. Turn it into a 700 from a 700 to a 900 seat church. How do you do that with went around with a round building? But anyway, I said I would do it, and I said, but could I, at my own cost, do a second design? And they said yes, as long as. But we can't build the second design. I said, well, if I can show you a second design that's simple and that the cost is you know equivalent or not too far off of the renovation, would you consider it? They said, well, we really can't afford that. That's crazy, Duncan. But we'll consider it. Anyway, we did two designs, one a renovation of this 1960 extravaganza, and then one a new, very simple uh, octagonal building uh, in a cube with a much taller ceiling and a clearer sanctuary and a beautiful uh, tower and, uh, and a nice porch, a beautiful Doric porch, and, but very, very severe. And they, we got the price in, and I want to say in those days, it was something between like 10 million and 11 million. They said, well, for $1 million, we'll do it. So that's really the, an amazing success story that they were willing to do it. And then it turned out, I think, better than they had hoped. And, and of course, that's what we we're there to serve. So that's what we want. And, and it just thrilled me that how much this classicist named Father Hermes would take a risk on us. Uh, it sure looks great in the pictures. I'm looking forward to seeing it in person now. I mean, your churches are especially decorative, beautiful with a capital B. I mean, decorative ornament in throughout the interiors. I don't see any evidence of minimalism in your work. There's gilding, there's decorative painting, ornamental metalwork, stone carving, intricate plaster work. What kinds of allied artists and craftspeople do you work with regularly? And, and how do you describe their contribution to your work? Oh, no question, Peter. I think... The architect, a very good architect, does beautiful drawings, and that can give um, a direction. And in a certain way, you can't do uh, fine work without really good drawings and very clear, well-proportioned, beautifully decorated drawings. But in terms of the allied arts, uh, my hat's off to all of the craftsmen that we work with. Uh, we tend to use some local craftsmen when we can, especially the normal contractors that you would expect, you know, steel, concrete, mechanical systems. Um, usually masons are local. Um, and then we, we actually try to import uh, people from all over the country to do the other stuff. So 
plaster work, we've used uh, Evergreen, we've used um, a wonderful plaster company from uh, Toronto has done a lot of our work. Uh, decorative painting, I love to work with the top three, Evergreen, John Canning, and Conrad Schmidt. To me, they're the best. Those three, they're the best. They have different strengths. Um, we've been lucky in some projects because it's not cheap to do stained glass. And we really love doing that. And we've had great, uh, great experience working with Conrad Schmidt from Wisconsin. They do all the work uh, for the campus at the University of Notre Dame. And we've been fortunate for them to do. In fact, at Tampa, they're going to do their largest stained glass windows that they've ever done. I think there's something like 20 by, not quite 20 by 30, two windows. And um, that'll be the largest that they've ever done. So, um, yeah, plaster work, metal work, uh, of course, woodwork, that tends to be local. Uh, we get to try to find the best millwork companies. And, but then the carving of wood or so on, we love to use um, Radig and Schottler out of, uh, uh, who, who are kind of known for their pews, but they have a very fine wood carving. We've been fortunate on some of the projects to do uh, these amazing woodwork is on the organ cases. And I've got to do, I think five or six organ cases working with great organ companies. And um, there you really need top companies to do the, the, the case. And usually we use something fine like mahogany. And um, we've, we've been able to work with top carvers. Um, Demetrius Klitsis from up near Boston, um, who's doing the largest, our largest wood uh, composite capitals. I think they're about four feet tall in wood and mahogany. And, um, uh, but lots and lots of good people. But I think there, there are, I think the challenge for the architect is depending on what you're doing, um, you need to move to a higher level. And that could mean going to a different firm. Doesn't mean that other firm isn't great. They may be great at what they do, but in terms of getting more refined or something that people touch or see, or that it's something like an ambo or an altar or something that, that is really sacred, you, you, it's worth spending the money and maybe the more experienced or the more uh, detailed uh, carvers or plaster workers or metal workers for those specialty things. And that's been really fun for us. And that's why I say we like to import people to the cities we're working off all around. I'm licensed in 35 uh, states. Wherever we work, we try to bring these people in, marble people. We've been trying to bring in booms from Michigan and they get their supplier uh, from Italy, who was a good friend of mine. And so I like to work with the same people again and again and again, because they give me the top quality. And I can just whisper this to your listeners, but when they make a mistake, they fix it. They fix and it. Like, like everybody, like me, like everybody, they make mistakes and they fix it. And that's the beauty of, of working with the same people over and over again, in my experience. Where you teach Notre Dame, why is it one of only a few architecture schools which teach classicism? Well, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that happened, uh, the, the American schools, of course, uh, were, were fantastic uh, and taught traditional architecture um, with different influences, uh, particularly the French Ecole influence, but many other European influences. Um, heading towards the 30s. And as the 30s came in, the Art Deco and some kind of modernist thinking uh, came, uh, developed in it. And then we had this invasion by the Germans 
um, not with their bombs so much as with their architects. And so uh, Gropius went to Harvard and um, um, the guys went to Chicago, IIT and uh, Mies and so on and Breuer and um, their ideas took over the American uh, mindset in architecture schools and architects embraced it, you know, modern, progressive, up-to-date technology. And of course we went, we won that war against the Germans and others uh, using great technology. So really they got rid of the classical tradition in schools. Uh, even if you wanted to study it, it was verboten and, um, uh, and, and we had, uh, we had many decades of modernist education, but um, there were a couple of odd places that kept, you know, interest in history or in the, in tradition or in cities or in, you know, different things. And probably the, 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 the ones that are the most well-known would be Princeton with Michael Graves and the University of Pennsylvania with people like Venturi and Lucan. But then I would say the, the, Perhaps the most influential was Yale, uh, believe it or not, great modernist school, and yet was always a little bit, a little bit naysayer, a little bit like willing to, to break the rules or have a different opinion. And so Yale produced a lot of the great Driehaus winners, a lot of the Palladio winners were Yaleys who kind of broke the mold or broke with the pack. So they were individuals who broke with the pack. And when I was at that school, I had the fortune to study with another guy who really was a mold breaker, Thomas Gordon Smith from Berkeley, from California. He was a crazy Californian and he loved classicism. He was not well educated as an architect, but he was self-educated. He was really passionate about teaching. He taught it at uh, Circle in Chicago under Stanley Tigerman. He taught at Yale under Tom Beebe, and he really wanted to take it all the way and start a whole program in it. And so 35 years ago, he came to Notre Dame said, I'll put you guys on the map as a school of architecture and I'll use your Rome program, which we had for now for 50 years. And I'll use the Rome program where the students go and we'll make this uh, happen in place. And boy, was he prophetic. Uh, we, we've gone from, when I graduated from graduate school, I knew five architects who we would claim are classical in, in, in you know, 1987. And today, you know, there's hundreds. And, um, so Tom Scorn Smith is the visionary. He did it 35 years ago. We're still going strong. We've got we've had wonderful deans since him. Um, we continue to develop and bring in new teachers and of course new students. And we get students from all over the country who want to study classical architecture. Uh, but there's a lot more than that because not only are we doing great and doing well, and our graduates have one or two or three job offers. Uh, but we, uh, we are now getting some very healthy competition from some wonderful places. Ball State, Catholic University, uh, St. Andrews comes to mind. I think they're still in the game. So is Thomas Gordon Smith your favorite mentor? Thomas was a great mentor. Not only was he a teacher of mine and when I first came to Notre Dame, he really mentored me as a young architect and, you know, got pushed me to, you know, design things and build things on my own, which you really need to do as an, you know, as a faculty member and really a great friend. He pushed me into studying Palladio, which I did as a young guy, measuring the buildings and so on. Um, and a great friend, great mentor. Um, the other person I have to uh, give great credit to was my postdoc, 
I did a, my first job after graduate school was with uh, uh, the great Alan Greenberg in Washington, DC. And Alan taught me both about American classicism, uh, his passion, as well as the great, um, let's say, uh, mannerist architecture that he loved by people in England, but especially the, the great Edwin Lutyens. And that was very formative. I got to work on a couple of buildings with him and he was a masterful designer. And a six, when I got to him, which is 35 years ago, he was already a successful architect. He was like, uh, you know, 50, 50 something years old. He was already building, you know, some of the best new classical buildings in the country. And uh, we worked at the State Department. We worked at the University of Virginia, William and Mary. And then he went on to bigger and better things. And my favorite one that he just finished is the new um, Opera House of all things in at Rice University. So those two, I would I would say, are my my greatest mentors. One I studied with, and he helped me as a young teacher, and the other who really educated me as a young draftsman in his office, and I owe them a great debt. Did either of those two mentors talk you into launching Sacred Architecture Journal? What how'd you come about being the founding editor of of that publication? Oh, well, that's a great story. Yeah. So I was here at Notre Dame for a couple of years trying to be a young, trying to teach well and uh, trying to develop a practice doing little houses and doing little designs. And I did do some designs, which probably didn't get paid for to for new churches or retreat centers or these kind of things and pro bono kind of stuff. And uh, none of it gets built, of course. But um, I was really interested in how do we promote these ideas that we're talking about at Notre Dame and other places to the world and kind of Catholic architecture particularly was really dismal at that time, let's say 1993, 1990, 1993. And I started researching it. I started publishing, you know, some articles and things. And I realized how dismal it was and how bad the theology was and how modernist everybody was. And they didn't even know that they were being modernist. They thought they were being up with the times, Vatican II and theologically deep and it wasn't it was just it was basically just the Bauhaus with a thin a thin veneer of uh Christianity on top it was all fake so we uh with Thomas's support and also actually support from one of my friends uh, Ralph McInerney who's a famous philosopher at Notre Dame uh they said yeah why don't you start a magazine and you know without any money without any you know whatever we just did it and you know did okay and we did more. And then some other guy came along and said, I'll give you a few thousand bucks if you make it color. It was black and white, believe it or not. And let's turn it into a color magazine. And and then he disappeared. I never saw him again. And uh, But thank God he did that. And um, so I've had a number of people that have pushed me to do things. And with a lot of help, a lot of authors, we just celebrated 25 years and we published a little article on all the articles that we've done. I know, Peter, you've done even a lot more than I've done. But we published all the articles, all the names of the articles and all the names of the authors. And it was so fun to see that people that wrote for me 10 years ago, 20 years ago and uh, gave us great things. And then they went on to do other things, probably better things. But we've been really fortunate to have architects, historians, theologians, priests, um, people of different religious persuasions, uh, modernists, historians uh, write for us. And uh, uh, it's been a great been a great run. And uh, and it's also why I appreciate traditional building on, um, you know, giving time and focus to our, our, our sacred buildings in your December uh, issue. It's so wonderful. Well, from one magazine publisher to another, uh, 
nice job on Sacred Architecture Journal and, and happy anniversary. So speaking of people who have mentored you, Duncan, um, I imagine you've mentored quite a few young and emerging professionals, architects. What advice do you give young architects, uh, design and construction professionals about advancing their career? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think ultimately um, we as teachers, uh, if we're going to be successful, I think a really successful teacher is not only do they learn some things and produce beautiful drawings, beautiful designs, but they have the impetus and the inspiration to do something good, uh, whatever that is. And so I love to be in touch with my students after the fact. Uh, I also think the true mark of a teacher is not as we do it every year, we give a teacher evaluation, the students give you evaluation. I think the true evaluation of a teacher is 10 years later. What did I actually learn from him or her 10 years ago or more? And what's the benefit? So I'm always thinking about that. I don't know if I would rate highly, maybe I'd rate poorly, but my goal is to, is to uh, encourage, push. I'm always trying to push the kids to do something better or bigger than they would otherwise, which might you know, might be, might be furniture design, uh, or might be going into another field, but, uh, mainly into architecture. Um, and I've had a lot of kids go into sacred architecture. Um, it's very important who you study with and what you learn in college and what you choose to study in your time, in your four or five years of school of architecture school. But it's just as important that first job, that first couple of jobs, because you're going to really be taken to the new level where we can't teach you those things in school. Really, there's things we really can't teach you in school. It's very hard and you need to be on the job training. And so that first or second job is crucial for your development as an artist, as an architect, as a, you know, someone who's involved in construction, as someone who knows how to take care of clients and, and listen to clients and, and even help steer the clients. So, um, again, I would say uh, my mentors, you know, Alan was amazing with the clients. I learned so much from him. And uh, Thomas was uh, brilliant in his uh, work as kind of a visionary and his combination of scholarship and, and uh, teaching scholarship and practice. And uh, so I think the students, uh, future generations, uh, take those first jobs very seriously. I meet a lot of impressive young architects in the classical design space uh, who have graduated from Notre Dame and probably many of them disciples of yours. This has been fun, Duncan Stroik. Congratulations on all your accolades and published work and Palladio Awards and look forward to Traditional Buildings Ecclesiastical Issue, which is uh, uh, hot off the press. Oh, thank you, Peter. And thanks for Traditional Building and for AIM Media, all that you do to foster beauty and truth and goodness, and I wish you the very best in this great trip to Tampa and all of your other uh, wonderful conferences that you put on that I enjoy and, and so many architects and others enjoy. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Our Building Tradition podcast is produced by Anne White, with technical assistance from Nate Gruca. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.